Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that tonight you'll help me to teach your word faithfully and boldly, but more than that, we pray that you'll give us ears to listen uh, and heart, hearts that are soft to receive your word in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How good was it to uh, hear Kenneth's story earlier on? And uh, what I loved about Kenneth's story is I think what I love more than just about anything else is when people come with genuine questions about Jesus. Uh, when people come with, with genuine desire to learn more about Jesus and to grapple with Jesus, really trying to work it out. Uh, I find sometimes when, uh, when people are doing that, when they're coming to ask questions, sometimes they're sort of apologetic to me that they're uh, asking me questions about Jesus. Uh, and one person I remember, they admitted to me, they said, oh, I don't want to ask you my questions because I don't want to rock your faith. Uh, and I had to say to them, really, I have not heard a new question in a long, long time. You're not, you're not asking me something I, I've not heard before. But other people ask their questions, to be frank, they, uh, they ask their questions to be malicious uh, or to try to annoy or to show off. It's like the kid in the scripture class who sort of asks, you know, you say God can do anything. Well, can God create a rock big enough that God cannot lift? At which point the answer I want to give is, well, I do know God can create a rock big enough to drop on you, but uh, self-control usually prevails. Uh, but you can always tell that type of questioner uh, because they don't even listen to the answer. You know, they're asking the question and as you answer the question, they're not even waiting for the next, they're just moving on uh, to the next question. Uh, you know, well, well, what about this then? Well, well what about this then? Uh, and that is the sort of questioning that Jesus is facing in this chapter of Matthew's Gospel we've been looking at over this couple of weeks. People coming to him not with genuine questions, but coming with tricks, coming with tests designed to trap Jesus, designed to catch him out and get him into trouble. So last week, if you just uh, scan back to last week's passage, verses 15 to 22, it was the Pharisees trying it on with Jesus. They sent their disciples, try to question Jesus about taxes, try and trap him. And their great desire was that he would upset someone, that he'd either upset the Romans and get himself into trouble, or he'd upset the Jews and lose his popularity. Uh, but Jesus was too smart for them. This time, it's the Pharisees' bitter enemies, the Sadducees, who are coming to test Jesus. So you've got to remember, there's these two different groups of people who hated each other at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, if you like, were sort of like the fundamentalists. They were the people who loved God's Word. They loved the Bible, uh, all of it. They took the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, very, very seriously, but they'd become legalistic. They were lacking in love. They'd forgotten the wood for the trees, if you like. The Sadducees were the opposite. So they loved all the trappings of religion. They loved getting dressed up. They loved going to the temple, all that. But they did not love God's Word. And in fact, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis through to Deuteronomy, that's all they accepted. And the key thing about the Sadducees, what defined them was they did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, not the resurrection of Jesus, that hadn't happened yet at this point. They didn't believe in what the Old Testament talked about, how at the end of time, God would raise all people from the dead, some to eternal life and some to everlasting judgment. They didn't believe in what we now look forward to as Christians after the coming of Jesus, that day when Jesus will return and bring in a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth where there'll be no more sin and no more pain and no more suffering and no more death and where you and I, if we trust in Jesus, will be raised to be a part of it. For them, this life is all there is. 
In fact, I think the Sadducees would have really fitted in well in our modern world. They just lived for this world. They said, this is it, you know, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And they sort of liked religion if it didn't make you do anything, if it didn't call for a response. I think that's like our modern world. So the Sadducees, they come to Jesus with their question. Now, we're not told their motivation. Uh, It could be they were trying to trap Jesus, could be they were trying to discredit Jesus, uh, like the Pharisees tried to do, or perhaps they're actually trying to get Jesus to agree with them so they could use it against the Pharisees. Because, you see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. The only thing they hated more than each other was Jesus. Either way, they're not asking out of a genuine interest. They're not asking out of a genuine desire to learn. And you see that in their question. Look at it, it's a conundrum, it's a brain teaser. So my first heading, the conundrum, multiple marriages and the resurrection. Look at verse 24. Teacher, they say, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And when they say Moses said, they're talking about the Old Testament law in books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and the like. And here they're referring especially to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. And it was all part of God's way of caring for widows in the Old Testament. So remember, no social security, anything like that back then. Uh, And so the way God cared for a widow, as well as preserved a person's family line, was this system where if a man died and there wasn't a son his younger brother would marry his widow to try and produce an heir, to produce a son who would then care for the widow and carry on the dead man's family line. Now, of course, this is totally foreign to us. The idea that we would be required to marry our older brother's widow is not something we even contemplate. And in a society where there is uh, social security and where your name and family line don't matter as much as it did back then... Uh, it's foreign to us, but there it was part of God's good provision for them. The most famous example of it, we looked at recently in our gospel teams. Who looked at Ruth in their gospel teams recently? Yeah, so in Ruth, we looked at this and you saw how Boaz was called a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. And he stepped in and married Ruth to provide for her and care for her as well as her uh, widowed mother-in-law. But the reality was, other than great examples like Boaz, who's sort of like a standout in the Old Testament, through Israel's history, this is one of those laws that was very rarely kept. This is one of those ones where they said, no, not bothering with that one. People did not like this idea of having to marry their brother's widow. Uh, But the Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, well, we've got an example. We've got an example of it. Let's tell you about it. So look from verse 25. It says, now there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died, having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same happened to the second also, and to the third, and so to all seven. Then last of all, the woman died. Now at this point, I am surprised that Jesus didn't say, perhaps this woman needs to be investigated by the police. You know, uh, one husband is careless, two, who knows, but seven, you know, I think autopsies are required here. But uh, of course, no one actually thinks this is a real case. It's not like the Sadducees are saying, this this is this lady over here. They're they're telling it like Jesus tells a parable. They're doing a Jesus to Jesus, if you like. This is a what if. But of course, the key verse is verse 28. Look at verse 28. It says, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they had all married her. Now, despite their over-the-top, somewhat silly example, if you think about it, this is a real issue. When Christ returns and when we are raised from the dead, there will be people 
who were married to more than one person in this life. There'll be people who are widowed and then remarried. There will sadly be people who are divorced uh, and then remarried. Now, of course, this is only an issue if all the people are Christians, if all the people love the Lord and have come to trust in Jesus. But it is a real issue. And so the point the Sadducees are making is, well, surely that makes this idea that we will all be raised from the dead silly. They're just trying to say, if this is the case, there's so many problems with this idea that we'll be resurrected. It's just not workable, Jesus. It doesn't work in the real world. So what's Jesus' answer? How does he respond? Well, he gives three answers and he does actually deal with that question of marriage in the resurrection. That's the second part of his answer. But first of all, he goes to their deepest problem, which you'll know from looking at Matthew's Gospel already. That's what Jesus tends to do. People come to him with a question. He says, yeah, I'll answer that, but I want to tell you what you've really got wrong. And so their deepest problem, their fundamental problem is in verse 29. Look with me there, it says, Jesus answered them, you are deceived because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. That's their fundamental problem. Their fundamental problem is they do not know the Scriptures. Jesus is saying to them, you're coming with this silly conundrum, well, here is the heart of your issue. You do not know God's Word. You refuse to accept God's Word. You claim, yeah, you claim you know the first five books of the Old Testament, but you don't even really know them. And even more fundamentally than that, you therefore do not know God and you don't know His power. You you do not know because you meet Him in the Scriptures. You don't know the God who can part seas. You don't know the God who can move mountains. If you really knew the God of the Scriptures, you would never doubt that He can raise people from the dead. And in the end, isn't that the fundamental issue for all of us when we struggle with doubts? We doubt God's Word and we doubt God's power. See, and in the end, that is the place we need to turn with our doubts. That's where we need to turn with our questions. We need to turn to God's Word to find the answers. I know I'm like a broken record on this, but whenever people struggle with their faith... Never people come to me and say, I'm really struggling uh, to trust in Jesus, I'm really struggling with my faith. Invariably, they are not reading the Scriptures. Almost invariably, they are not reading the Scriptures because it is knowing the Scriptures and so knowing the power of God that is the antidote to doubt and the antidote to struggles with our faith. Do not be deceived, Jesus says. Know the Scriptures. That's how you are not deceived. But now, Jesus turns to the presenting issue, what about this woman and her seven husbands? How will will that work in the resurrection? His answer to this is really, really simple. Look at verse 30. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As I say, Jesus' answer is really, really simple. This lady will not have a problem, these seven men will not have a problem, because there is no marriage in the new creation. It's not which one will she be married to, she won't be married to any of them, problem solved. And when it says we'll be like angels, it doesn't mean we'll have wings and and be really scary and all that, it means in this sense we'll be like angels. Angels are not married, angels don't have babies, angels are just there, that's what they are and we will be the same in the resurrection. But as simple and easy as that answer is, uh, it's not an issue because there is no marriage, 
That answer raises all sorts of questions for us, doesn't it? Uh, especially for happily married couples where both are Christians. What do you mean my wife and I won't be married in the new creation? How can that be? People can't even contemplate that idea. Well, let's think about the new creation. Let's think about it. First of all, I want to say there's a lot we know from the Scriptures about the resurrection and the new creation. We know, for instance, that when Jesus returns, all people will be raised from the dead. Every person who has ever lived will be raised from the dead. Some, those who trust in Jesus, will be raised to eternal life. Those who have rejected Jesus or ignored Jesus will be raised to everlasting judgment. We know that. We know that there will be a new creation. This idea that you sort of float around up to heaven is not the Bible's idea of what we look forward to. There will be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth where we will get to live with God without the consequences of sin, without sin. There will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more tears. We also know that we will have physical bodies in the resurrection, that's what a resurrection is. We will have physical, real bodies and we will know who we are. We'll recognise each other. We'll say, there's Jacob and there's Troy and you know, you will know who everyone is, who is there. But our bodies will be different. You read about this at the end of each of the Gospels where you see Jesus' resurrection body. It's physical but it's not bound by our creation in the same way. He can appear and disappear. He's not bound by the, the laws of nature as we call them. So there's a lot we do know about the resurrection or the new creation from the Scriptures. But there's also a lot we don't know. We don't know exactly what form our bodies will take. And we don't know which us it will be. It, will it be my 18-year-old self, you know, before I went to seed, so to speak, you know? Or, or, or will, will it be us at, at the point we think our bodies were best? I don't mean that in a crass way, you know what I mean? See, then we think we don't know what will we spend our time doing in the new creation. Yes, we will praise God, but I think it's also there's a sense that we will work in the new creation. We will till the ground, if you like, but without any of the pain and trouble of this fallen, broken world. It'll all be with joy. One thing is for certain, there will not be doctors and there will not be lawyers in the new creation. Isn't that wonderful? I used to... Anyway... Because there isn't sickness and there isn't sin and you only have doctors and lawyers because you have sickness and sin but that's not in the new creation. See there's lots we know but there's lots we don't know about the resurrection but one thing we do know is that Jesus tells us here there is no marriage in heaven. So what does that mean? The thing is marriage and sex go together in the Bible. When it says there's no more marriage in heaven, it means there's no more sex in heaven because in the Bible's way of viewing, sex is only for marriage. And the purposes of marriage and the purposes of sex in the Bible are all for this time that we're living in now, this life, not for the new creation because marriage is to create stable family units for the raising of children, for the bringing up of children, for the good order of society. And sex is given as a gift for marriage in this life. Firstly, as a means of procreation to have children so that we can then raise them in those stable, uh, loving, committed relationships. But secondly, sex is given to bond people together as a family unit, as one flesh is the way the Bible talks about a husband and a wife. Those things are not necessary in the new creation. 
mainly because there are no more children to be born and raised. That's not part of the new creation. And more than that, and this is sort of mind-blowing if you think about it, we will have true relational intimacy, true sinless relational connection with everyone in the new creation, not just with one person as we think about it in marriage. Now, I think for those who are married, you will still see your spouse in the new creation and you will remember the, the wonderful things you've done together in this life, if that is the case. You will know them and you will love them. This is not saying you will not have the best things of true emotional intimacy with your spouse in the new creation, but that wonderful emotional connection that is marriage at its best will not be limited to one relationship in the resurrection. It will be possible to have that relationship with multiple people without jealousy and without animosity. You can have that because we'll be in a world without sin and without the consequences of sin. And to be frank, sadly, in some marriages, even Christian ones, they are not great examples of wonderful relational and emotional intimacy. There is awful sin in marriage. That will not be the case in the new creation. Now, I just want to pause at this point, because I think this reality about the resurrection has massive consequences for this life. See, the fact that sex and marriage are not a part of the new creation means something incredibly important for this time. It means that sex and marriage are not required to be a fulfilled human being. I think that's one of the great lies even Christians share with one another, that somehow you need to be married to be fulfilled, you'll find fulfilment in marriage, it's a lie and it comes from our world, not the Scriptures. See, our world is so confused about sex and for that matter marriage, it undervalues sex and overvalues sex almost in the same breath and it undervalues marriage and overvalues marriage at the same time. It undervalues sex by saying it's not a big deal, it undervalues it by saying, just do it with whoever and whomever you feel like and there aren't consequences of that. There are consequences of that. The mess that our society is in is at least partially because of the promiscuity of our society. You see, it does enormous damage to people when sex happens outside the bonds of a lifelong union. But then in the same breath, our world is now saying sex in your sexual identity and your sexual expression is the most important part of who you are. So on the one hand, it doesn't matter, just do it with whoever and whomever you think. But then on the other, it's the most important part of who you are, our society is now saying, and you are defined by whether you are a heterosexual or a homosexual or whatever other variety our world has come up with. And they say, you need to express your sexuality to be who you really are because it is the true you, it's the essence of you and so they say to someone like me to tell people that they can't express their sexual identity is to repress them and it's to harm them. Now I don't have time tonight to go through and show the foolishness of that way of understanding our identity and how harmful it is and how unhelpful it is and what a mess it's making of our world. In fact I'm going to do a three-week series on it next year about our identity and how our world has got it so wrong. So God willing, that'll happen in the new year. But the point I want to make is, the fact that sex is not a part of the perfect new creation exposes the folly of this idea that you need sex, or for that matter, a marriage relationship 
to find fulfillment. If you think about it, Jesus is the most truly authentic human being who ever lived. Jesus is what we were designed to be, the perfect human being, and yet he never married. He was celibate. The Apostle Paul is perhaps the greatest example we have, apart from Jesus, of someone who lived his life for God's glory. The Apostle Paul said, I have found the secret of contentment in every situation and yet, as far as we know, he never married. And it means you do not need to be married to be a fulfilled human being. You don't need to express your sexuality, as our world puts it, to be yourself. It is a horrible, destructive lie of our world. And Christians fall into this trap too. We can idolise marriage. Marriage is a wonderful gift of God. It's to be valued, it's to be supported. But you do not need to be married to be fulfilled. And in fact, people who look to marriage or who look to any other person to give them fulfilment. You know, people say, you know, the old Tom Tom Cruise line, you know, you complete me. You see, they're actually destining their relationship to fail. A marriage can't handle that weight. Because you see, true fulfilment, finding your real identity is found by knowing God, by coming to know Jesus. That's the only place to find true fulfilment, not in a relationship. And the wonder of that is, when we find our fulfilment in Christ, it actually liberates us to have healthy relationships with one another, whether that's in marriage or in friendship. And we'll see that most wonderfully in the new creation. Because in the new new creation, We will relate perfectly to Jesus and we will relate perfectly to every other person who is there. Well, if you come back now to Jesus' third answer to the Sadducees, he knows they're not really interested in marriage. In the end, their problem is they don't believe in the hope of the resurrection. And that's what he wants them to know and believe. So the third part of his answer, the hope of the resurrection, verses 31 to 33. Verse 31, he says, Now concerning the resurrection of the dead... Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I love that sentence. Did you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, go to God's Word. That's where you find the truth. That's where you find the answers. It's God's Word that you need to teach you. Now, at this point, Jesus could have gone to hundreds of places in the Old Testament. He could have gone to basically any psalm. In the book of Psalms, there's so many of them that talk about how God will not abandon his people to death, to Sheol, which is the place of the dead in the Old Testament. Here's an example, like Psalm 16, verse 10, it'll come up on the screen. For you will not abandon me to Sheol, you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. He could have gone to any one of the prophets, he could have gone to Ezekiel, he could have gone to Isaiah 26, which will come up. 26, 19, your dead will live, their bodies will rise, awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. And he could have gone to the most famous passage of all, he could have gone to Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, which says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. He could have gone to any of those places. He he could have pointed them to so many parts of the Scriptures to prove to them that there will come a day when we will be raised from the dead. But remember, the Sadducees didn't accept the prophets. They didn't accept the Psalms as part of God's Word. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus meets them where they're at. He quotes them from the book of Exodus. 
that we read before where God appears to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 and he quotes it, look at verse 32, he says, this is what God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now what's going on here and why does this prove, like it says there, that God is not the God of the dead but of the living? I'm sorry to take you to, you know, English at school but it's the tense that God uses. I hope you learned grammar at school but anyway, it's the tense, it's the present tense. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were long dead at this point of history, they've been dead for hundreds of years and yet God does not say to Moses, I am the same God who appeared to Abraham, the same God who appeared to Isaac, the same God who appeared to Jacob when they were alive, no, 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 he says, I am currently, now, still, I am the God of these men you think of as dead. You've got to say, it's not like I made a covenant with Abraham back then and it's all over for him. No, 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 God doesn't let death stop Abraham receiving all that God promised him. God was saying to Moses at this point, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are alive because they trusted me and so death is not the end for them. Now, it's not as explicit here as if he'd gone to Daniel or Isaiah or the Psalms or Ezekiel or anywhere else but Jesus is saying even back there in this little part of the Bible that you do accept because remember they only accepted a tiny bit, even back there you Sadducees Sadducees should see that God is the God of the living not of the dead. Now we're not told whether he convinced the Sadducees, Uh, there were Sadducees later on who did become Christians which is a wonderful sign of how powerful the gospel is but you doubt many were convinced at this point because they weren't willing to be convinced they weren't actually asking a genuine question but what I love is the crowds who were listening in they heard what he said look at verse 33 it says and when the crowds heard this they were astonished at his teaching I'm sure they were astonished at the clever way he has answered their conundrum But I think and I hope, I hope they're actually astonished by the content of his teaching. And I pray that you are astonished by the content of Jesus' teaching. Even though I'm sure many of us have heard a thousand times. I hope you are astonished by what Jesus is saying here. I hope we are astonished by the fact that one day we will be raised from the dead. That is our hope that we look forward to. And I hope we are astonished by how wonderful that new creation will be. There will be no more pain, there will be no more death, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more disease and of course there is no more sin. And in that new creation we will have a perfect relationship with God but we will also have a perfect relationship with one another. I hope you see how wonderful this is, there will be no more lies in the new creation, there will be no more jealousy, no more hatred, no more gossip, no more unfaithfulness, no more abuse of people. So much so that our relationships with one another will make even the best marriage in this life look like nothing. Isn't that astonishing? That is what you look forward to if you trust in Jesus. So, I want to say if you are here tonight and you do not trust in Jesus already, come and join us in that wonderful hope. This world has nothing to offer. This world is fallen and broken. 
It has nothing to offer. Come and join us in this wonderful hope. Come and ask your genuine questions about Jesus like Kenneth did because that is the only hope that matters. And for those of us, many of us here who do know Jesus, I want to just remind you tonight, this is your hope. This is what you look forward to as you look at this fallen, broken world now. This is our hope, the hope of the wonderful new creation. So let's live in the light of that hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we look at our fallen, broken world and sometimes we despair for it. But Father, we thank you that we look forward to something far better when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead to live forever with you in a world with no more pain and no more suffering and no more sin. And Father, we long for everyone in our world to share in that hope. And so we pray at this Christmas time that many might come to know the Lord Jesus and share that hope with us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.